0: Hello there and welcome to another episode on the Green Living Chat Podcast. Today's episode, it's on the research stories segment. This is a segment on the podcast where we have chat with researchers in different disciplines of environment to talk about their researches and how it can be applied in the industry and what we can find from their results. And today we are talking about plastics, plastic waste pollution and life cycle assessments. In the 21st century, I think everyone is aware of what is happening around the world when it comes to pollution of waste and how we are struggling with waste management in the whole wide world. This is a big topic and people are saying that we should blame the producers, others are saying we should blame the consumers, we are trying to put a lot of blame on the supply chain But what we forget to see is everyone has a role and if we want to have a sustainable action towards waste management, we have to come together and collectively make a change. From suppliers to consumers to producers to policymakers to everyone in the supply chain needs to make a change. And one of the pending issues in these conversations that I'm talking about is which material is sustainable. But how do we know a material is sustainable? The International Standardization Organization provided a general framework for conducting an assessment called Life Cycle Assessment. Life Cycle Assessment according to a paper wrote by Mary Ann in 2013 Life Cycle Assessment – A Review of the Methodology and its Application to Sustainability defined LCAs as an analytical tool that captures the overall environmental impact of a product, process, or human activity from raw material acquisition through production and use to waste management. And this is a very important tool in our world where sustainability has become a very huge and sensitive topic. According to Mary's paper, Although the International Standardization Organization defines LCA and provides general framework for conducting an assessment, it still leaves much of the interpretation by the practitioner. And this leaves a lot of thoughts and questions in our minds on whether LCAs can be reliable. Are they biased? How then do we know that a material labeled sustainable by an LCA is actually sustainable? Oh boy, that is a super complicated issue, but I really enjoyed my conversation I had with Dr. Takunda Chitaka on today's topic, plastics, plastic waste pollution and LCAs. Dr. Takunda is currently a postdoc research fellow working at the University of Western Cape. Takunda is a chemical engineer by education, holding a PhD from the University of Cape Town. She focused on life cycle management of plastic products prone to accumulation in marine environment. She also holds a bachelor in chemical engineering and MPhil, specializing sustainable mineral material development from the University of Cape Town. Kakunda's research is driven by the desire to develop specific knowledge surrounding the myriad of sustainable development challenges developing countries face. And we had an amazing conversation on what should LCAs really contain? As consumers, what should we look out for? What does it mean really to find an LCA about a material saying that? is sustainable. Are some of the materials out there that have been claimed to be sustainable really sustainable? Finally, what is our role as consumers in sustainability? Who else is super excited to hear this conversation? But before we get into this conversation, why don't you share this episode with a friend of a friend and help us to reach new listeners on this episode. Rate us on any platform where you are listening to this. It helps us to reach new listeners as we educate people about things that really matter. So why don't you grab a coffee and let's get into this episode. You are listening to the Green Living Chat Podcast, a podcast where we discuss emerging environmental issues around the world and to find sustainable solutions. I'm your host, David Ewisie We use this platform to support environmental-related initiatives, researches, and projects. This podcast is brought to you by EqualMed Solutions in Ghana with a mission to going back to green. So join us on this train with new episodes this and every Sunday. Here we go. Hello Takunda. Thank you so much for joining me on the Green Living Chats. I'm really excited to see you.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah, you're really welcome. Actually, I have to tell you that I was really interested in your research the first time I heard you having an interview with Lucy from One Small Step. And uh, she mentioned about your paper and I was very excited about it. So I just went in to Google to check out. I got this paper. I went through it and it sounded super interesting. So I decided to, hey, why don't I reach out on LinkedIn and we could have a conversation. So I would like to welcome you again to the research story segment of the Great Living Chat. I would like to know a little bit more about you and how you grew up. I know you're from South Africa, but I don't, I'm not sure if you're originally from there, but hey, you're here to tell us. So can you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Yes, so I'm proudly Zimbabwean. That is my home country. That's where I was born and raised. I moved down to South Africa for my tertiary education. So for my bachelor's degree, and I've been there here over since.
0: So how was childhood in, I mean, Zimbabwe?
1: It was good, despite everything else going on. Um, I grew up in a household that was very academics focused. So we actually used to compete amongst the siblings to see who did better because we had the Cambridge system of education, you know, the O levels and the A levels. So we'd all used to compete, including with my dad, to Mm -hmm. see who was the smarter one. So that's the kind Mm -hmm. of environment. I grew up when so everyone is very pushed to do the best they could do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I had a conversation with a man called Eyal. He's working with a company called Blue Green Technologies in, in Israel. He's actually originally from Israel. And I was asking him a question because he told me about his background and he's a professional lawyer, but he's currently working in microbiology. And I was really surprised at how the whole thing turned out. And he told me that he just didn't have any other choice because his mom actually was a professor in microbiology. So it makes me wonder, how did your interest in sustainability start?
1: Well, it's a good thing you mentioned that story because my father is an electrical engineer. Okay. And my undergrad is actually in chemical engineering. And so was my PhD. So I can relate to your friend there.
0: What is happening here?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Parental expectations are what's happening. So I did my undergrad in chemical engineering at the University of Cape Town. And what they do once a year is they do a research showcase of all the different research departments that are there. And I remember I heard this one professor speak about this new program that was you know, sustainable mineral resource development and how you looked at the social and the economic aspects of everything, a holistic view. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. That was my entire decision making process. And I hunted him down and I stalked him. And that's what I ended up doing. So that's when my interest in sustainability, you know, actually came up from a quick two minute presentation.
0: Wow. That's that's just amazing. You know, I, I love it when people who have already made an impact in in the industry come to tell us about their stories. But, you know, what it makes me always wonder is sometimes we make it seem that it's very easy to make these kind of choices in life. So it makes the young ones who are also coming wonder, is it that easy? So you heard about this presentation and you just wanted to get into sustainability, but I'm sure that along the path, it wasn't that easy. You had to make certain choices. You had to read certain courses. You had to, you know, go the extra mile to get some mentorship and all that. So how was it for you? I mean, throughout that journey until you got to, you know, actually do these things in in the lab and also in, in school?
1: The reality of the decisions you make are not easy, like you, you pointed out, you know, you have coursework, you have to learn all of these things. But I always believe that if you pick something that you love, you know, that helps to dry your tears a little bit when you're suffering through it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a challenging course, but I've always been one to enjoy learning. So. I did enjoy every aspect of it and it also made me grow as a person during that master's program is when I decided to go into academia full time. So that's also when I decided to, I'm going to pursue my PhD, so it was really a moment of growth. And honestly, if you're facing a difficult decision, look within, because when you find what's right for you, it will resonate inside you. I can't describe the feeling, but you just get this feeling that this is, this is what's for me, this is the path I'm going to take, and then deal with the logistics.
0: I do fully agree with you. And I think those things you mentioned are super important and I think they can be very helpful to people, right? So let's get into the things that you do right now. I have to say that congratulations on all the efforts that you're putting into your work because I feel and I know that your work is very impactful. You know, we normally have a lot of people deciding to go into academia, but You know, sometimes we think that it's just about doing things in writing papers. And, you know, sometimes you wonder how the papers are actually related to what is happening in the industry or happening in real life. And checking your website and going through, you know, some of the work and some of the papers that you've written, I think that you're really making an impact. And I would really love to understand how you've already talked about how the journey was for you. Um, getting to study you know life cycle assessments and and all that but how did you specifically arrive at your research topic especially with your phd
1: so what happened was during my masters it was in the mining industry and i was going to continue with this in a similar topic for my phd but my supervisor at the time just said to me look tukunda i'm willing to supervise your phd but i have another topic idea so me being me and some sort of spontaneity <laughs> that I don't know where I got it from. I was like, "That sounds like a great idea," because then I can learn new skills, <laughs> and that's how it happened. I'm apparently I'm very open to suggestion, and you know, I look where, at wherever there's an opportunity because opportunities just pop up, and I'm so glad that I took the most of the opportunity and made the best of it.
0: So, what was this topic, and what did it basically entail?
1: So, my topic was looking at integrating plastic pollution into life cycle assessment. Traditional life cycle assessments don't actually have a way for you to put in the impacts of pollution. So like your plastic sitting in the ocean for years and years, there's no way that can be held accountable for in life cycle assessments. And our thesis was, look, you can't just ignore it. Life cycle assessment is one of the big reasons why we have a lot of plastic on the shelves, because we did life cycle assessments that showed plastic was better. But we couldn't consider this littering aspect and we can't continue. We now need to have a holistic perspective of the life cycle assessment of a product and littering and dumping is one of those potential fates. So that was the overall thesis of my research is to look at that and to look at how can we then integrate littering into life cycle assessment. With that plan, we then went to industry and said, look, Do you think this is an idea that you would use, that you would adopt within your own industries when deciding how to approach plastic pollution? So it was very action research. We really worked with the industry to do it because we didn't want the ideas to stay in papers. Like you said, you know, you come up with a brilliant idea and then it just sits in a paper and a couple of people cite it. That's not the type of work I enjoy doing. I mean, I have a lot of respect for my colleagues who do groundbreaking research in the lab. But for me, my calling was to work on current issues and do action research in that regard.
0: Wow. You have actually packed so many things in what you just said. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you're going to break these things down, but but um, let's, 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 let's go ahead. I think that this has become a very big issue that everyone is just talking about. It's not that before plastic waste, there wasn't any type of waste. There was. But why are people so interested and why is it receiving a lot of attention so far? I would like you to talk a little bit about what is happening around you since you are working in South Africa what is the status of plastic pollution and what do you think are the contributing factors?
1: So you have two questions that I want to respond to even though the first one wasn't quite a question. You mentioned how plastic pollution has become this hot topic lately since about 2016 and in reality you know researchers have been reporting plastic pollution since the 70s. You know in South Africa research on this topic goes back to the 80s and it's been well documented. And what I'd have to say about that is the right person said something of plastic pollution because all it takes is someone with a lot of fame to mention it. So I remember the Ellen MacArthur Foundation released a report in 2016 and then everyone was hooked on the issue of plastic pollution. Everyone got on board. So it's an old issue but it's a matter of how do we create awareness, which is I think sometimes researchers we fail to do in our fields. It's it's a failing, but we're trying to be better. In South Africa, like I said, they've been looking at plastic pollution research goes back to the 80s. And one of our well-respected researchers that I follow has been looking at since the 80s. It's become as you know lifeblood. So it's very well documented and it's very well documented that South Africa has a great plastic pollution problem because you know what they have a waste management problem. Yeah. You know, if people don't have Adequate waste management services. What are they going to do with their waste? They're going to dump it, you know. And then what happens when waste is dumped? The wind can pick it up, or people will dump it near rivers, so it gets flushed away. So it's no longer, you know, outside their backyard. Where do rivers lead to? They lead to the ocean. So, a lot of the issues surrounding plastic pollution linked to the solid waste management infrastructure. But let's not forget human behavior. Human behavior is a very big aspect in this. In that humanity will choose to attach value on something. If something doesn't have value to you, you throw it away. And that's the simple truth. We've created products with so little value that people have no issues just dumping them or throwing them away because they don't see any value in it. And because it gets picked up by the wind and it's gone, they don't see the impacts of it either.
0: My mind is just somewhere thinking about what we have actually done because now you look around you and you go to the supermarket and there is not even a single product that you can get home that is not wrapped in something else. Now it seems like we cannot live without it. There is practically nothing on earth that you can do without packaging probably. And all these things are practically single use. So this conversation really, I mean, you have really answered my question, but it really still makes me think a lot. And what I would like to ask you is that, do you think that the attention that plastic waste pollution is getting is sort of a greenwashing method, or you think it's actually a problem? Plastic waste
1: pollution is is a real problem because you know, plastic doesn't disappear from the environment. It's persistent. It stays and it stays and it stays. And you know, and people make predictions like by 2030, half the ocean is gonna be mostly plastic. We're gonna have more plastic than fish. This plastic is sitting there in garbage patches. It doesn't go away. You know, It's not like just because it's flown out into the ocean doesn't mean the ocean is this vast body of water that can just accept everything. You know there's a tipping point of all of it so yes it's a big issue i have a challenge to throw at you because of your comments about the supermarket mm-hmm. what is the purpose of plastic it's for packaging yeah and it's to extend the life of things it may not necessarily be for some things like if you're putting a butternut in plastic then i don't know what you're doing but i'll give you the example of an english cucumber i think with the plastic its life is extended to about 12 days and without it, I think it's about four days. As someone who lives alone, you know, I would like my fresh fruits and produce to, to stay longer because I don't want food wastage. The impact from food wastage is so incredibly great. So I want my things packaged in plastics to this day longer, but there has to be a trade-off. Not everything needs to be in plastic, but plastic does have a function. We just misuse it.
0: So now it brings a lot of questions to mind that how do we move forward Um, In the industry, there are a lot of questions about which material should we use then? This is better than the other. This is more sustainable than the other. But we know that there are a lot of tools that people are using to predict these things. Moreover, these tools have also been misused for so many things. And I am talking about life cycle assessments. People are using this in different ways. And you have done your research in life cycle assessments. And I would like to ask you, what are life cycle assessments and what do they entail?
1: So a life cycle assessment compiles the environmental impacts of a product or process from cradle to grave. That is from the extraction of the raw materials to its disposal, end of life. The way this works is that you compile all of the inputs and the outputs at every single stage. Let's say that, you know, you're baking a cake you have to have your flour, your eggs, your butter. All of the impacts that come from getting the flour, from growing the wheat to grinding it into flour, are counted, you know, your eggs, how the chicken was raised, what, you know, if they've got any medication, all of the food that i got is counted. Your butter, the process of milking a cow and turning it into butter is counted. So all of the impacts of that are counted. When you put your cake in the oven to bake, we count the electricity. Where does the electricity come from? You know, is it coal-based? What are the impacts of creating that amount of electricity just for your cake? And when you take it out, are you gonna leave it to chill naturally or are you gonna put it in a chill blaster like they do in restaurants, a blast freezer? If you are going to put it in a freezer, we're going to count that impact as well. So it's a very comprehensive tool that you can use to analyze the potential environmental impacts of something.
0: Just as you've mentioned, and I think I also mentioned earlier about this tool is very efficient, but we have seen several of them so far and people are using it in the wrong way. You also mentioned earlier about that um, certain assessments were not made well, and certain materials were presented as more sustainable than the other. But now moving forward, I think that the public also need to be educated about these things, so that should they see a company presenting LCAs about a certain product or a certain material, they will also request for certain things that makes the LCA good or biased. So, Takunda, what makes an LCA good or
1: biased? So, I think of this old saying, garbage in, garbage out, when you're doing an LCA. If you feed nonsense into it, you're going to get nonsense out. We also need to remember that the people who conduct these LCAs have to make a lot of decisions. There's a lot of assumptions, right? So, as someone going to come across an LCA, the first thing I would do is read those underlying assumptions first and foremost. The results don't matter. Read what were the system boundaries, so what do they take into consideration? Where they had no data, what assumptions did they make? Because that's what influences the results. Don't go straight to the results, go back to the very beginning and see, hmm, exactly what LCA did they conduct, of exactly what product, exactly what did they take into consideration? And then you can look at the results with a different perspective. Because you're right, LCAs can be biased. I can make an LCA say what I wanted to say. That's the simple fact of the matter. And it's up to the reader to learn to be cognizant and read the front matter first and understand that. I know it's really fun to just see the results and start quoting results. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's good to know exactly what do these results mean. It's not just a bottle. You know, and I'll say for a bottle, what type of bottle? Where was this bottle made? Did they consider that the shipping of the materials on A to B or did they just ignore that? All of these things you have to sit and think about first before accepting results.
0: Yeah, so I've been having conversations about LCAs and I got to know that sometimes we put economic value or we put let's say a value on a certain material which is actually not representing the actual value when it comes to thinking about it's social, economic, and I don't know, whatever thing impacts that, that material holds, right? What do you think about the loopholes when it comes to LCAs? Secondly, someone was also telling me this about the LCA could be qualitative or it could be quantitative, right? So whichever one that you choose, could it depict what is actually happening? In the product or material. Do you think that LCAs are truly reliable and they are completely reliable?
1: So I like that you brought up the socioeconomic costs of something, because that's when you go to the other family of life cycle thinking tools. You get the lifecycle assessment that's purely environmental. Then you get the life cycle costing, which is economic, then you get the social life cycle assessment, which takes into consideration those societal impacts that you mentioned. So where we go towards now is a life cycle sustainability assessment, which is a more holistic view mm-hmm. of the different trade-offs that will be made in the different spheres of sustainability. LCA is an ISO-certified environmental assessment method. So the ISO standards actually put out guidelines for how you should conduct an LCA and everything you should declare. So a good way to know um, how rigorous the LCA is, is it ISO certified. They do it according to the guidelines of that, by saying, are they reliable? When you go to the grocery shop and you want to buy veggies, you don't just pick the first bundle of green veggies you see. You look and you choose and you're critical as you're making this decision. And that's how people should approach LCAs. You don't just pick the results. You look and you're critical about what this LCA is about and about how it was modeled. So you can't just blanket and say all LCAs are reliable and you can't just blanket and say all of them are rubbish. With all things in life we have to be critical. I will add that the ISO certified ones require an, an LCA to be reviewed so that also adds an extra layer you know of peer review that you know at these people did things that made sense so at the end of the day, if it's are certified, you can feel a bit better about it since it was reviewed by other experts.
0: All right, so let's get into your research now. Um, I read a couple of your papers and one that actually brought me here and the reason why we're having this conversation was a paper that you wrote on a comparison of life cycle assessments of five straw materials options in South Africa. You have other papers that are also related to life cycle management of plastic materials and also some other materials that are being used in, in South Africa. In a nutshell, I think you can just choose which of them you would like to specifically talk about. But can you give us a brief um, summary of what your research entailed and some of the main findings that you got out of it?
1: My PhD research looked at how to integrate littering into life cycle assessment. And what I was putting forth was a proxy indicator. So currently there's no indicator for the impact of improper disposal, pollution and littering. And my argument was, why don't we use the leakage rate being the fraction of a product that ends up in the environment as a proxy? Because if 85% of your product is ending up in the environment, you really need to act. You don't need me to tell you what the potential impacts are. There's clearly a problem. So that was the angle that we're taking. So the way we estimated these product leakage rates was actually through using beach surveys. So I spent about three weeks walking the beaches of Cape Town, which sounds very glamorous, but it's not. You know, some of it was quite backbreaking labor, picking up pieces of plastic on very polluted beaches. And from that, we used sales figures to see, okay, what fraction of chip packets is ending up, you know, on these beaches. And then we actually went and we did interviews with people in industry to be like, what is your approach to plastic pollution? Has the current global spotlight changed the ways you're practicing? How do you think leakage rates would influence your practice? Do you think there would be value in that? So those are the type of questions they asked them. And we got quite positive feedback from them about leakage rates. And then another aspect was evaluating the current impact of the different interventions. So people were going wild about straws, I tell you. Straws was one of the big, big offenders, especially after the video with the turtle. Yeah. So everyone was anti-plastic straw. So I was like, okay, fine we're now all ditching straws and bringing in all these different materials. What's the impact of that? Are we going forward or are we going backwards in this situation? Because there's no point in then doing a material substitution and then causing more harm in other compartments. That's not smart. We're just going backwards and forwards and just choosing to destroy another part of the earth. So I was like, okay, let me do a case study on that. Another case study I did was on cotton bud sticks, also looking at paper versus plastic and then on beverage bottle lids, because we found more lids than the actual bottles in the environment, and the lid comes with the bottle. So we're like, okay, why are the lids all here, but the bottles are missing? What's going on? Why is that? So that was one of our questions. Like, why is there such a difference? Yeah. It was quite fun work because we were dealing with actual issues that were happening on the ground. And it was also kind of stressful because there were always new developments that you had to keep up with you're like, oh my gosh, something new happened today. There's another global declaration. Then you have to shift your work for that. Yes. Would not recommend.
0: Exactly. <laughs> All right. So now looking at the research you did and the major results that you, you came out with, I want us to talk a little bit about your results specifically to this research you just talked about and how it can influence the industry, right? So now you looked at different materials that are being used for a particular product and um, what did you find out? And what do you think the industry should think more about?
1: So like I said, one of the products I looked at was straws. And I just want to give a very funny aside to the story because when I started doing investigations, every time I'd go to a restaurant, I'd look at the type of straws. It got so bad that my, my friends and family would actually take photos of straws when they went out without me. My poor friends had to sit through me questioning every manager or waiter yeah, about the straws. Yeah. It was a situation for a while.
0: Now you became a straw gallery.
1: <laughs> yes. For the, the one night we went out to this restaurant, which I won't name, and they had a very peculiar straw. It looked like a paper straw with a chevron stripe going down it. but It was very firm. And I was like, is this paper? What's going on here? Turns out it was a plastic straw wrapped in paper. Oh, and that's
0: the worst. I've never
1: thing. felt so defeated in my life. I was just defeated. I was just just don't. Just don't make the difference instead of trying to deceive your consumer base. This is ridiculous. But that's just a funny aside from me doing the wow. straw research. For my thesis, I did an LCA of the different straws, like you mentioned. So we looked at paper, plastic. Polylactide, known as PLA, which is a very popular bioplastic that entered the market. Steel and glass as two reusable straws. So we had a mix of single use and reusable. And what we wanted to find out was, can we compare the impacts of these straws over a year's worth of usage? So your glass and your metal, you'd use them continuously over the year. And then for your single use, we estimated the amount I think it was 38 straws that someone would use in a year. And when comparing those, we actually found one very interesting result was that our plastic straw had a higher greenhouse gas emissions than our paper. If you go to other countries, plastic is lower than paper, which is why it's important to read the start of the LCA, the system boundaries. And the reason they came about is because in South Africa, our electricity is coal-based and our Mm -hmm. plastics are also coal-based. So you've got two very heavily carbon-based raw materials going into making plastic. We also looked at the break-even point. So if you're gonna get a reusable option, you have to use it a certain number of times before you actually realize a net positive impact. There's no point in just getting a glass straw for the gram and you never use it because now you're just creating an impact for no reason. <laughs> yes, you know people get them for the for Instagram, don't lie to and me.
0: <laughs> they do. <laughs>
1: So, we were looking at how many times we'd need to use them and for those metal ones, I think it was up to over 60 times that you'd have to use it before you added in net positive effect. And then you ask yourself in life, over a year, do I use a straw 60 times in my lifestyle? Will I remember to wash that straw and put it back in my bag and carry it around when I go out or not? If you're not using that straw. 60 times, then, you know, you might as well use a single use option because you're not going to break even. So so those things that we really try to bring out and that is environmental impacts and also considering the price you pay of single use versus reusable.
0: These things are very heavy and I think they even leave consumers thinking about a lot of things. I know that these issues or maybe these circumstances might differ from country to country or to even community to community, right? So, I mean, you have put out a, a conclusion, but I think that it's, it's really important that people get to understand that the impact of materials or probably whatever thing that you're using, whatever alternative that you're using, it varies considering different conditions, as you have already pointed out. And people have to be aware of these things and understand the options or probably the alternatives that they go in for, right? I think that's what you're trying to put out.
1: That's exactly what I'm trying to put out. But the sad thing is, as a society, we're subject to the marketing that comes at us, you know. Another example is that polylactate plastic, which is the bane of my existence, um, because it was marketed as biodegradable. That plastic is not biodegradable. It doesn't meet the standards of biodegradability. It's compostable. And I met a poor restaurant owner who had switched to these plastics. And I asked Mm -hmm. her why. She said, they told me they're biodegradable. And then I had to break this poor woman's heart because she did it because she truly cared about the environment. And I tell her, ma'am, you've been lied to. That's what people are facing out there so many lies, so much greenwashing simply for economic benefits.
0: Exactly. It's a really huge issue, Takunda, and really, this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I've spoken to several people who are in the recycling industry. Actually, I had a chat with someone in the packaging industry from Czech Republic. He clearly told me that the packaging industry or the world is not ready for these compostable, probably biodegradable packaging materials, really, because looking at the machines and technology that we have right now, we've not even been able to take care of the mess that we've already created, yes. how much more bringing in more other materials, really. And if you listen to people's opinion from other countries, I've spoken to people from India, Australia, um, Asia, other parts of Asia, the US, the Europe, it's the same problem that we are facing everywhere. And of course, I mean people are doing their best to control the pollution rates, finding alternatives to, you know, help manage the waste and everything. It's really a very complicated issue and the worst part is when you have people greenwashing people and people trying to, you know, get people to do other things which are actually not sustainable but they do it for economic benefits. So it makes me ask myself that are we ever going to solve these issues? It still remains unanswered. All right. So I would like to ask you about what do you think we can do to control the plastic pollution?
1: From a consumer perspective, rethink your choices. You know, when you go out shopping, when I go out to the shops, I take my reusable bags, not just grocery shopping. If I'm going to the pharmacy, if I'm going to look for a t-shirt. I will take my reusable bags. I'm not taking any bags from any stores. I don't need that. Why am I using that extra plastic bag? You know, or if I'm picking out potatoes, loose potatoes, I don't need to put them in a plastic bag, those clear plastic bags. They're potatoes. They have a skin on them. Let them roll around in the shopper bag. They'll be fine.
0: (laughs) Sure, they will.
1: You know, it's things like that where you make small changes in your life that you know, have a big impact, because so it's about us controlling the change that we can change. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. But we, it can't just be consumers, we must push the industry and push those big corporate giants to make a difference and tell them, look, we don't want straws. And also, don't take a straw while you're telling them you don't want straws. That's conflicting information. You can't be sipping on a straw and telling them you don't want straws. That's not how any of this works, so we need to also show them through our pockets that we're not gonna buy things like this. We're not. Y'all need to make a change. And I, and I think that's where we have a lot of power as consumers is to speak directly to corporates and businesses. Because trust me, societal pressure is a big decision-making factor for what they do.
0: It's 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 really true. I would just like to repeat what you just said because consumers really have a lot of power. I joined the webinar where they were trying to have a debate and they were asking, so who is actually polluting? more is it an industry or is the consumers everyone came saying so many things blah, blah 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 here and they all had like you know valid points and for me i think that i really agree with you we as consumers do have a power to tell the industries that hey if we are not buying your products it means that we do not like it and we want you to rethink but, you know, it's, it's a whole complicated issue because we don't have to forget that these products have already been made and they are already in the system. So if we don't buy them, what happens to the product? Are they going to go back or they will just end up? Because we've seen so many cases happening where big supermarkets, you go to their waste bins and they have like products that have not even been opened. So I don't know, I don't want us to get into this, but this whole thing is a very complicated issue. But what we want consumers to understand that we have a power to make the change and also to push the industries to also make a change. I know that a lot of countries have adapted to banning uh, plastics and banning single-use plastics. And since you have done work on these materials, I'm sure that you have an idea about or an opinion about um, these things. What do you think? governments you consider or what is your general mindset or thoughts on the banning of plastics and single-use plastics
1: so that's a complex problem because banning works in some nations and it doesn't work in others in rwanda rwanda hasn't had plastic bags for how many years a very long time they've succeeded in the banning of plastic bags but they had to have alternatives whereas in kenya they tried to ban plastic bags but then they realized the industry wasn't set up to make the alternative. So it was a more of a complex transition. So you have to consider the environment within which you operate. Why are you banning this item? And is the economy-ready to transition a type of economy that doesn't have this item or not? Because you can't just throw bans willy-nilly, which is why you're finding the bans are usually announced and it's five years out to prepare the industry. At the same time as you're banning, what's the alternative? Exactly. What are people gonna do? You can't just ban and not have a plan you know you have to have a plan that's more sustainable than the ban you can't ban and then encourage the use of materials that are less sustainable that's irresponsible so at the end of the day we have to use a number of approaches which does include bans but bans may not always be appropriate in all locales
0: Takunda I think that you have done an amazing work and in moving forward you will be looking at um, several collaborations and Moving to other steps to, you know, move on with your work. And what are some of the future plans for you? I think you earlier mentioned that you are going to stay in academia. So what are some of the things that you're looking at to do? And how can people collaborate with you?
1: So I'm currently a postdoc at the University of the Western Cape.
0: Yay, congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And this is going to be another funny story again. Okay. Because now as was an undergrad, my thesis was in plastic. And I don't think much of it. And then my master's thesis was in scrap metal. Okay. And I didn't think anything of it. And then my PhD was in plastic waste again. And I was like, okay. And now I'm looking at e-waste and organics, and I've realised I've become a waste person. Mm. Yes, <laughs> <Not right>. just <laughs> somehow oh, ended up being, you know, a waste expert, <laughs> just by design. it's just all.
0: I wonder when you become a professor, what your students will be doing. <laughs>
1: it's going to be very exciting for them because currently also you're talking about your friend who's a lawyer in microbiology yeah right so i've got a background in chemical engineering and i'm currently working under the research chair for western society and it's based in the department of social work okay so i can definitely relate to your friend and i'm quite happy then that We get to work with people and I love being in an interdisciplinary environment, I don't let my previous studies cage me i'm not going to say i'm always going to be a technical person in the lab. I like to work with people so that's quite exciting if always open to collaborations, especially across the African continent, I think we need to build each other as researchers and you could always reach me via my website, which is. David, our website.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna put it in the show notes and
1: you forgot what it's called. I was testing you.
0: It's (laughs) actually your name.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I wasn't very creative there. So let's make it simple. So people can reach me via my website, www.takundachitaka.com Remember my name, you can always find me. And I'm always happy to chat. I'm always happy to chat with, you know, young people who are thinking about going into academia and you know, just seeing if they want any advice. I'm always open to that. Because we have to help each other as we progress in
0: life. I'm really excited about um, talking to you about your research and your experience. And I have to say that really, you have really done a very amazing job. And I'm really excited to be connected with you. So guys, I'm going to put the details that you need to get in touch with Takunda In the show notes, her email, her social media platforms, her website, and you can get in touch with her. She's a very friendly, amazing person. I met her not long ago, but I think that she's a super sweet person. So get in touch with her and get collaborations, upcoming researchers. I think that these are good mentors for you that you could get in touch. I know she's busy, but I'm sure that she can make time for you. So before we end the podcast, there is a question that I would like to ask you that should you have the chance to change just one thing about human behaviors towards the environment in Zimbabwe or South Africa or wherever you can think of, what would it be?
1: They need to think twice. Okay, You know, a lot of times you just do things mechanically, like you will just drop a piece of litter mechanically or you will you know, burn a pile of rubbish mechanically. But then take the time to think twice about what is the impact on your environment. Because it's not just the environment, it's your environment that you're impacting. So before you do something, just think twice. Is this beneficial for my environment or am I harming my environment?
0: I love that, I really do. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And I don't know if you have any last words or something that I probably missed and you would like to bring it out.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been fun and hilarious and a great way to talk about research in a relaxed space. Yeah. All I can say to the people out there is don't be discouraged. I know it seems like a steep mountain to climb, But every day we get a little closer
0: to the peak. I really do believe so as well. So really all the best to you, Takunda. And I really wish Uh, you the best, your family, your research group, and all the projects that you're doing. I'm really, really looking forward to getting in touch again. Probably we could have, I don't know, maybe like a panel. Um, I don't know. I'll think about something and get in touch with you. But really, if you have anything that you would like to ask to talk about and probably collaborate or do anything. I'm really very open to that, but just know that I'll be bothering you a lot henceforth. And thank you so much (laughs) for joining me today. See you soon.
1: Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Living Chats podcast. This initiative is to educate and create awareness on things that really matter. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments as we get interactive on our social media platforms at Echo Amet Solutions on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. If you would like to be part of these conversations, contact us via email at glcpodcasts at echowametsolutions.com or see our contact details in the show notes. See you on the next episode, and remember, live green.